Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today? Sir? Yeah, I'm doing really great. I've got a lot of projects that I'm working on this week. You've heard about some of them, and we're I not going to talk about them right here. But yeah, I'm excited about all the stuff that we're doing to learn and grow. Today, we are going, or rather this week, we are going to be covering the book of Helaman, chapters one through six. We have concluded the war chapters in the book of Alma. And we are now in the book of Helaman, who is the son of Helaman, the son of Alma the Younger. That's the Helaman we're talking about. So, uh, Derek, any context you want to give before we dive into the No, let's just dive right into chapter four. To to chapter four? Isn't that where you're starting? That's where I'm starting, but like, don't you have something before that? Nope. You have Okay, cool. Nope. So, uh, we're going to go into chapter four then, for real. We're doing this. Okay, so we are in chapter four of Helaman. Now, just to give you a little bit of context of where we're at at this point, the wars, the, or rather the conflicts between the uh, Nephites and the Lamanites are still going on. And what has happened here is the, is the Nephites just lost the land of Zarahemla, and we're being told why they lost it, or rather we're being told why they are losing it all in this war. We are in verses 11 through 13. That's where I'm looking. So these verses read, Now this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them. Yea, and it was among those who also who professed to belong to the church of God. And it was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches, yea, it was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and revelation, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery, rising up in great contentions, and deserting away into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. And because of this, their great wickedness and their boastings in their own strength, they were left in their own strength. Therefore they did not prosper, but were afflicted and smitten and driven before the Lamanites until they had lost possession of almost all their lands. Now I can't say this for certain, but part of me feels like the church might be close to this, Derek. Certain sects of Christianity Mm. are certainly already there, but I'm thinking specifically about us. I'm thinking about the church. We're not in a war right now, at least not one with, uh, not one fought with, swords and guns and stuff like that, but we are definitely in some sort of conflict with uh, words. We are suffering loss because of the wickedness of the people among us professing to belong to the church of God. I mentioned a couple of episodes back a conversation I had with a friend about her relationship with the church and how she's not sure she'll be able to return when this pandemic stuff is over because of how out of place she feels socially and culturally. And I just saw yesterday a listener of the show post on a social media about how hard members of the church are making things for black members and other people of color to exist and thrive because of their racism. Now, I can't really argue against that. Sometimes it feels like we're not wanted here. That that person's experience and the reading actually called to my memory something that we learned from Reverend Dr. Fatima Soleil this week during the Spit and Mud course. And that Spit and Mud course, by the way, is about the miracle, the messy miracle of seeing racism 
in Christianity. So what we learned this week in the course was uh, about terror texts, or rather texts of terror. Uh, the concept of texts of of terror, if you don't know, it's a womanist theological descriptor for stories that illustrate the failure of systems of power to prevent violence against women or to provide victims with justice. It exposes the misogyny of patriarchal cultures by pointing to the to the abuse, the exploitation, and the violence present in such stories. And the story she pointed us to was the story in Matthew chapter 15. This is the story of uh, the Canaanite woman who is seeking a healing for her daughter. This Gentile woman ventures into basically enemy territory to seek the Savior's healing hand on behalf of her ailing daughter who is vexed with the devil. And the Lord's very servants, his closest associates, his disciples, they tell him to send her away because she crieth after us, quote, other translations of this text say because she is bothering us or because she is shouting at us or shouting after us or screaming at us. Her existence, her voice, her pleas are an inconvenience. That's how these disciples are treating this woman. We, we know how this story ends now. Like the master does end up healing her daughter. But how are we to reconcile those actions of the Lord's disciples with their blatant dismissal of a person who humbly sought help with no regard for her safety and no regard for her pride. She was going to seek a blessing for her daughter. She was doing so with no prejudice, with no pride, only to be treated in such a way. How are we as members of the church to rationalize the dismissal of black members who need to know their lives matter? This uh, person that I was making reference to, her social media post, she felt that way because her mission president had kind of gotten on her case about posting all this Black Lives Matter stuff and how she was coming off as combative. Now, I just want to put it out there that if you take a greater issue with or if you are louder about the methods and the tone with which black people protest the injustices done against them, louder than you are about the injustices themselves, there is a problem. That is not a Christian thing to do. That is not what Christ would do. The question is, how are we as a church going to rationalize the dismissal of black members who need to be affirmed to say to them, how do we ra how, how do we rationalize saying to them, send them away because they're bothering us? How can we as the Lord's disciples make the existence of any marginalized group more difficult because we don't want to ask the same difficult questions that they've been asking and they've been wrestling with their entire existence here. Again, we are not fighting a war with weapons. We are fighting a uh, war with words. We are experiencing a great loss as the Nephites were experiencing a great loss because we, like Christ's disciples in Matthew 15, consistently choose our comfort over our covenants to comfort others. That's good. Yes, thank you. To validate others, to listen to heal, to help, to love others. Our immutable differences should not get in the way of that. But uh, anyway, let's get back to this Helaman text real quick. We're, we're talking about great loss due to wickedness of those who profess to belong to the church of God because of the pride of their hearts. And we'll get to this later. But pride doesn't like to look inward for solutions. Pride because of exceeding riches, because of 
their oppression of the poor, making a mock of that which is sacred. How sacred is the work of affirming the value of human life, regardless of sex orientation, color, and more? Like, what are we doing when we say all lives matter? What are we saying or communicating when we have straight pride parades or refuse to wear masks in public in the name of freedom? Are these things not a mockery of our most sacred obligation to recognize the humanity of other people? Should we not be engaging these people on their terms rather than engaging them on our own when that could very well put people's lives in danger? This is actually what Alma, or sorry, what Captain Moroni was accusing Pahoran of doing. Obviously, obviously Captain Moroni was wrong about that much, but his criticisms were still valid because if that was the case, then there is a problem. There's still a problem. But anyway, there's a lot to consider here in these couple of verses, but I just wanted to point out and bring out the fact that this great loss or whatever great losses that we're experiencing as a church are often the members that we need here most. And these members that we keep losing, particularly members on the margins, is because we don't make our church a more hospitable place for them. We don't take their concerns seriously. We send them away as the disciples tried to do of the Canaanite woman. We make an effort to ignore their cries in order to preserve the illusion of our own innocence. And that is a problem. That is the same problem that these Nephites were experiencing at when they kept losing all these wars and losing all of this land. That was their sin. That was their weakness. Yeah, well, I have a question for you. There might be some people in the church that said, hey, we fixed this with official declaration two in 1978, at least on paper. Like, what are you talking about? Like, the policies and doctrines of the church now fully accept uh, people of African descent. So then what would you say to those people who say, well, we're all good now? Well, did the Emancipation Proclamation end slavery? On paper it did. But it still took another couple of years before Texas finally stopped having slaves. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, those on paper gave black people the right to vote and ended Jim Crow segregation. But that didn't end segregation. It took other forms. We got redlining. We got mass incarceration. We got the war on drugs. That didn't end oppression. We can do a lot of things on paper, but that doesn't mean the institutional discrimination is stopped. We have to be able to acknowledge that just because we change things on paper or just because we say something on paper, that doesn't mean the institutional problems have been rooted out. Secondly, take cues from the people on the margins who are experiencing these things. We're actually going to have this conversation a little bit later when we get into chapter five, but uh, one of the greatest evidences we have that the oppression still exists is the word of people on the margins and, of course, the brightest minds of those same people. So... uh, I can't take seriously anybody who wants to point to political changes on paper when our own history demonstrates that that is not sufficient to make institutional change. Yeah, and I've often said this. A lot of people think that for for LGBT individuals, our goal is to you know get legal equality or in the church to have equality. But my, my view is that's not the goal. That's the first step. Right, mm-hmm. we're gonna have a lot of work to do after that, and um, it's interesting to see where that goes. And I just wanted to say one, two things about this. Uh, like verse twelve here in Helaman four says, and it was because of the pride of their hearts 
their riches, their the oppression of the poor. And, and so we've got a great social justice text here. But I just want to remind people that it didn't have to be that way. If we go back to Alma 62, verses 48 and 49, it says that they prospered, the Nephites prospered again in the land. But then in verse 49, it says, but notwithstanding their riches or their strength or their prosperity, they were not lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God. So what I want to say is that this pride cycle gets taught, but it's not an inevitable reality. It it doesn't have to be that way. Any prosperous civilization has a choice. We can choose whether we're going to go down one path or the other. And and so this pride cycle isn't automatic. Um, I just want to say to everyone that the pride cycle is actually the contraption I'm going to be writing next June. Contraption? Yeah. I don't. I don't understand. You're, <laughs> you're writing. Awesome. <laughs> you're writing. The pride cycle. I'm going to be riding in the pride parade next June. Oh gosh. <laughs> that is so terrible, Derek. It's worse than normal. Going to be riding a pride cycle. Okay, I know it's it. going to be this rainbow unicycle, and it's going to be a penny farthing. I don't see you <laughs> on anything but a penny farthing, Derek. Well, yes. That, okay. That, that's a bike that suits you. Do you have anything else in a chapter four? And the one, the other, the, here's something to. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I want people to write actually write down this question if you're in a place where you can write it down, and imagine this: you wake up and the world is suddenly just and fair. What do you think you'd lose? Hmm. And I think this is to help people with privilege to reflect on, like, do are they really going to lose anything if they uh, if if the world is equal? And the things that they would lose, is it worth losing in order to? And I really think once people have the right priorities in mind, they'll realize that yes, you might lose some things, but you'll get more out of out of the whole world and everyone will be better off so yeah let me just say it again imagine that you wake up and the world is suddenly just and fair what do you think you'd lose so let's move on to helaman chapter five then this is well we got one scripture mastery in here what is happening in this chapter actually so in helaman chapter five uh, we're learning about nephi and lehi uh, the sons of helaman This is quite a story. We're going to see some miracles in uh, this chapter, and we're going to see a lot of converts, a lot of uh, Lamanite converts, and uh, some Nephite dissenters even to the point where the Lamanites actually become more righteous than the Nephites. I think this is one of the first spots we actually see that phrase uttered. We've seen in other parts of the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites, or sorry, the Nephites becoming as wicked as the Lamanites, but I think this is the first time we see a story of the Lamanites becoming more righteous than the Nephites, other than perhaps uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. I don't have anything to say until after the story, Derek. So do you have anything you want to highlight prior to the story? No, I'm just going to start in verse like 5 and 6. Oh, snap. I might actually have something to say about that, but you go ahead. So this is interesting because we've got this textual flashback where... The sons, Nephi and Lehi, remember the words which their father Helaman spoke. And then we've got the actual words from verses 6 to 12. And the concept of remembrance gets repeated over and over. It's a major focal point here and elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. I love this concept of remembrance. 
and how it taps into the power of ancestors. What do you think of of these things? I actually really like the uh, idea of tapping into ancestors. I want I want to tell you, and I I want to. You know, I'll be as succinct as I can because uh, this idea of ancestors actually plays into uh, a series of spiritual exercises I've been engaging in for the last several weeks. The, the purpose of the exercises were to help me identify in more specific terms what drives me, what I want from life, and, uh, how I'm, and what I need to do to obtain it. Uh, so yeah, the, the, these verses actually tapped into those exercises and uh, I w- I'll just explain one as best as I can. One of these exercises is basically putting myself in the shoes of the disciples in John, in a John chapter one, verses like thirty-five through thirty-nine. There's this part where John the Baptist tells a couple of disciples to you know go after Jesus and follow him. Be like, yo, he's the guy. That's the guy. Follow him. And then when these disciples you know, go after Jesus to follow him, Jesus turns back to them and he says, what seek ye? And this is where I insert myself into the story. I ask myself, or I ask, or I have to ponder to myself, what do I actually seek? What do I want from the Savior? Now, when I engaged in this exercise, something interesting happened. I told Jesus what I wanted, which was basically, I want the means to be able to serve my people and to, you know, make something of my existence. I want the means to... And I want the wisdom to recognize those means. But then Jesus did something really interesting in this exercise, and he asked me why I wanted that, which I was not prepared for. Uh, So I did the best I could, and I answered the question of why I wanted those things. And then he asked me why again. This, this, This occurred for like three or four more times. That was basically the dialogue. But eventually, the reason I got down to was that I wanted to honor the suffering and the sacrifice of my parents, of my ancestors, of the people that looked like them, and of Christ. All of those people suffered and sacrificed quite a bit for me to enjoy the privileges that I enjoy right now. And uh, I feel like it is my responsibility to honor that sacrifice. I feel like for me to effectively show my love for the savior and show my love for my people. The best way I can do that is to honor the sacrifice of my black ancestors of my spiritual ancestors of uh, Christ himself. That is where I connected to this text. This is what I saw Helaman doing. I saw him asking his sons to remember their ancestors that they might be able to connect to the ancestors, particularly for the purpose of not just being like them, but honoring them too, which is something that I'm making a conscious effort to do. I want in my heart of hearts to honor my ancestors. I love others. I receive joy and I show love to other people. And I make something of my existence by honoring the ancestors, by honoring the sacrifice of Christ, by honoring my parents. This to me is what I see at the heart of what Helaman did when he named his sons after their first fathers. And it sounds like the choice that you made is, to use your words that you said earlier, the choice of covenant over convenience and comfort. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to frame this as a, uh, as a duty. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I do what I do happily, proudly, willingly. This is, 
more than a labor of simple duty to me. I want to be here. I don't just feel like I have to be here, but I really want to be here. I receive joy from this work. Like I don't do this with you every week because I feel like I have a duty to. I mean, that's true, but I also love it more than anything. I do this because I love my people. I love my ancestors. I love my savior. I love other people. Like I honor others. I honor the church. I honor black people. I honor people on the margins. This thing that you and I are doing, Derek, is an effort to do Mm. all of that. And it is indeed a labor of love. It's more than duty. It is definitely a labor of love. And I I think that ties in very interestingly with what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 11 when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm. Because yes, you have this obligation, but your character is transformed to the point where you love doing the thing that otherwise would be a yoke. That's what makes it easy. That's what makes it easy. I want to get back to a little bit more of this remembrance idea and the expanding on what you said about the power of remembrance for those who are marginalized or oppressed. And um, one thing to note is that here Helaman is 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 bringing out in verse nine the ancient social justice tradition in King Benjamin's sermon. Oh snap! Yeah. And I think that's something to note. And I'm not going to, everyone should go back and read King Benjamin's sermon, you know, a couple of times every year, I think. Oh, absolutely. At least. Yeah. But I want to talk about something else. Let's talk about a 20th century German Catholic theologian named Johann Baptist Metz. Now, he saw the mess of the Holocaust and the mess of the Second World War. And here's, here's something he did. He names this concept that he calls dangerous memory. And he talked about how retelling the history of the victimized is threatening to the power structure. Say that again. He talked about how retelling the history of the victimized is threatening to the power structure. All right. Yeah, talk about that some. And he uses the word anamnesis, which is the, comes from the Greek word for remembrance. And this is the same Greek word used by Luke and Paul in reporting Jesus's words when he said, um, "Do this in remembrance of me." That is the 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 sort of catchword that Metz is talking about, and he's referring to, and Jesus is referring to, remember the crucifixion by these Roman powers. And you know, here's something really interesting because one of the first things that colonizers do <laughs> is they wipe out the memory. Of the indigenous people's history. Mm-hmm. And that is why remembrance is so subversive. And I just want to hold this out here as all this stuff about remembering in the Book of Mormon. Remember, whoops, that's ironic. I'm asking people to remember that remembrance is subversive. So mm-hmm. every time you read these, remember how, how retelling the stories and keeping them alive and here's this is embarrassing i don't know if i should expose my whiteness here on on is it about watchmen because i was about to make that comment no but it's about this idea of i learned that black folks don't just automatically know black history Mm. that uh, and many family many black families might not even uh transmit what they suffered to their kids and so Mm -hmm. Black folks have to learn about the the heroes and the history and the tragedy just like we do. And mm-hmm. 
we're a lot of us with the Black Lives Matter movement of all races, we're all rediscovering some of these things. And it's important to have those remembrances and keep them in living memory and honor the ancestors and make sure that we can derive strength from their example and we can avoid the tragedies of that history Mm. and work against them. So something you said just now reminded me of this clip I saw online of a Oklahoma lawmaker. He's from Tulsa. He's from Tulsa, Oklahoma. He did not know what happened in Tulsa. He was taught Mm. about, he didn't learn about uh, what happened in Tulsa until he was in college. He recounts the experience in a way that would be funny if it wasn't, you know, so unfortunate. But what he said was that he was sitting in an, a, a class on African-American history and studies. And then that day he was learning about, you know, Black Wall Street. He was mm-hmm. learning about the thriving communities that were built in Tulsa and how they were eventually bombed and taken out. Yeah. And then he raised his hand. He was just like, hold on, I'm from Tulsa. Like, that's not correct. I'm from Tulsa. That, I don't remember that happening. And he's I'm, a black dude. And he's a black man. Oh, like, yeah. That was, the, that was the whole thing. Like, the whole conversation that they were having at this moment in that clip was about how much we are failing as a society to really teach our children to reckon with our racist history as well as the resilience of our people and the wonderfulness about American uh, ideals, that we can hold those two things in tension, but too often we don't encourage people to remember our true history. We actually reinforce this idea of sweeping the ugly things under the right. rug. We say things like, there are textbooks, there are whole textbooks that talk about how some slaves took great pride in their chores and in their duties and how they loved their masters and how occasionally their masters would have picnics for them. And uh, <laughs> while other slaves yeah. were lazy and they were mean to their masters and all this other stuff. like These are actual textbooks that yeah. say stuff like this. We paint lazy slaves as degenerates rather than the act of rebellion mm-hmm. or that it actually was like we don't oh and gosh a lot of people didn't know about uh what happened in wilmington like a lot of people don't know that the only coup d'etat that has ever happened on american soil happened at the hands of white supremacists in wilmington north carolina how are we just going to not have that conversation how do people just not know that remember when watchmen came out i know you don't really watch tv like that yeah i don't know watchmen okay but a lot of people learned about the Tulsa massacre because of Watchmen. Like most people, most white people in America did not learn about it until then. I wouldn't, you know, probably there's a lot of white black people as well that didn't know about the Tulsa massacre until then. But this all speaks to the point that you were making about how subversive remembering can be. When we remember our stories, when we remember our history, we are in a better position to fight for our liberation. We are in a better position to navigate this world that we currently find ourselves in that is very difficult to understand and very difficult to uh, navigate. So uh, I just wanted to speak to that point real quick in talking about the purpose of remembering. Members of the church can learn about this too. And that's what I love about the biblical record is it records the messes. Mm -hmm. And if you compare it to and this is a little bit of a generalization. If you change, compare it to the empires of Mesopotamia or Egypt, Babylon, like all these surrounding cultures, they just glorified their history. They literally carved out if something bad happened and, and a later king didn't like something, they would just carve it off of the monument. And I'm like, 
they have this really sanitized view of their own glorious history. And here the biblical record is they recorded all the mess. And so mm-hmm. don't think that the Bible's a children's book. It's, <laughs> it's not pretty uh, and it's not uh, appropriate for children all the time. And there's every hero in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, is going to make a major mistake. Mm-hmm. And they're not all moral examples. We can learn from these messes. And let's get back to talking about remembrance. Let's look what it says in verse 12. A lot of people know this verse. And Mm. now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. And here's a pro tip about how to navigate all of the awfulness that oppression and self-doubt and internalized uh, homophobia or internalized racism will, will do. Here it says... That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. So remember that if my jokes are awful, <laughs> you can stand on the rock of Christ and it will just blow by you and mm-hmm. it won't hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to at all excuse or, or erase the awfulness of oppression, but I want to say that there's techniques that we can do here. And I want to talk a little bit about the parable of the, the snowman. Oh, the parable of the snowman is coming back. Yes. And I had some listeners remind me saying, hey, you need to talk about this. And so... There are many, many new listeners that may not know this, so I'm going to just tell this real quick. So here's the parable of the snowman. Imagine, okay, once upon a time, there were some little children who wanted to build a snowman. So they built a little snowman, and they right on the curb of their yard. And then a rich guy in this expensive vehicle who hated little kids decided, I'm going to go run over their little snowman and laugh at them. And so these kids cried when they saw that their snowman... The, the, the dude didn't hit the kids. He just hit the snowman. And the kids just felt awful. And then the next day, they just said, okay, we're going to build another snowman. And then the same rich guy came in his expensive car and, and bulldozed the second-day snowman. So the third day, the kids decided to do something very interesting... There was a fire hydrant there, and they decided to build the snowman around the fire hydrant. And then the uh, then what happened was this rich dude came by, and he was laughing all the way until he hit the hydrant and ruined his car, and then he wasn't the one that was laughing then. And this is my hope and dream for LGBTQ listeners and other listeners as well who are believers is that if we build our identity solidly around Christ, everything that people do to us, they're actually doing to Christ. And they will run up against the rock that is immovable, and they will hurt themselves. And now I don't want them to hurt themselves, but they're the ones that are taking it on themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just want to hopefully empower people with that parable. Mm. I love the parable of the snowman. Glad we brought it back. It had been a while. I don't think I'm going to have anything to say until after the miracles, uh, starting in about verse 50. Do you have anything to say? 
Yeah, I don't have anything until verse 50 either in chapter 5. Okay, wonderful. Then let me just go through this real quick. So this is after Nephi and Lehi's miracles at the prison. They get cast into this prison. They're with mostly, well, they're with all Lamanites and Nephi dissenters. That's who's in this prison. And uh, when, after being deprived of food and water for many days, they try to take him out to kill him. But then fire comes down from heaven, surrounds them. Uh, they're not harmed, but they hear voices from heaven. Uh, they pray. There's earthquakes or, you know, the earth shakes. That's what's said. All this stuff happens. And then we get to verses 50 through 52. And it came to pass. This is verse 50. It came to pass that they did go forth, meaning the uh, prisoners, and did minister unto the people, declaring throughout all regions round about all the things which they had heard and seen, insomuch that the more part of the Lamanites were convinced of them because of the greatness of the evidences which they had received. I got a question. What are these evidences exactly? Because as far as we know, only those 300 people that were in prison had seen and heard these things. The most compelling piece of evidence that was remaining was the testimonies of the events that they experienced. And it may be significant, however, that these prisoners were Lamanites and Nephi dissenters and the people that they were talking to were mostly Lamanites. So with just this much to go on, just these testimonies of these 300 people that were in these prisons, the majority of the Lamanites were convinced it says a more part of the Lamanites were convinced and presumably converted, given what we read in the next chapter. The Lamanites embrace Christ. They become more righteous than the Nephites. Now, they become convinced to the point of laying down their weapons of war and also laying down the traditions of their fathers, which in large part is their hatred of the Nephites, which feeds right into what we see the Lamanites do next as a result of their conversion in verse 52, which states, Yielding up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession. The, Nephi, the Lamanites gave the Nephites back the lands they took in battle, including the land of Zarahemla, like the big one. The, the shared experience of a large group of people matters. That's the first thing I want to right. pull out. That matters. And it is good enough evidence for the Lamanites who ended up embracing the gospel and becoming more righteous than the Nephites. All they needed seems to be the word of those Nephite dissenters and Lamanites that were in prison. And they ultimately ended up converting. Not only did they become more righteous, but they also left behind the flawed beliefs of their fathers, which are probably a big part of their shared identity. And they made reparations to the Nephites by giving Amen. their lands back. So like... We, we see the analog now, I, I hope. White folks today struggle to receive not just a testimony of the overwhelming majority of black America, but also the statistically indisputable evidence of racism. This tells me a couple of things. Primarily, that racist whites aren't interested in our experiences because they don't view us as fully human, and they're not interested in evidence because they don't want to view us as fully human. To do so is to forfeit a large part of an identity that is built on our dehumanization. If black people are right, after all, then whites have to embrace a morality that challenges them, a morality that makes them uncomfortable, a morality that requires them to change in ways that divest from privilege and power. Look at what else these Lamanites did. They laid down their hatred and the tradition of their fathers. What's the tradition of racist white people? It's white supremacy. That's a hard thing to lay down for the reasons I already mentioned, but look at what the Lamanites did next to honor their new knowledge, which is probably something that frightens a lot of racist white people. 52. 
they did yield up to the Neph- to the Nephites their lands of their possession. In other words, they gave back the land they took in battle. Can you imagine how some white folk are going to feel if they had to give back everything they stole? Like, just think about that well, for a moment. we've got a problem. That is a problem. We've got a problem. It's a running joke. It's a running joke in America that white America doesn't have any culture that they didn't steal. None at all. We don't have any land that we didn't steal You don't either. have any land that you didn't like, steal. Like, are we all going back to Europe? For real. Like, if you had to give back everything, if you had to give back everything you took from black people, from the indigenous populations, from the immigrants we exploited, you would have to give back a lot of stuff. Like, country music. <laughs> black people made that. Yeah. Yoga. Definitely not a white thing. Lacrosse. Whitest sport of all time. Native Americans did that stuff. Native Americans made that. Coffee, not ours. Every form of American dance, not white people's. The entire show of Friends was a black show called Living Single. Jesus, even. White people stole that, too. White people stole all of that. For a racist white person to acknowledge that much is to open themselves to a lot of psychological unpleasantness. And the brain is programmed to avoid that mess. Our brains value efficiency and hate stress or any kind of change. This is why white supremacy and racism persist, in my opinion. It's a matter of physical and psychological survival for racist white people to preserve the illusion of their innocence and morality in the midst of our dehumanization. The only way you can justify the dehumanization of an entire people and the theft of their land and their culture is by convincing yourself that they are not really people. We've seen this on not just with people of color, but we've seen this with LGBTQ folks. We've seen this with women. Sorry, Derek, I think you had a thought. Yeah, you can finish and let me just say something. Okay, thank you. But yeah, like I said, it's a matter of physical and psychological survival for racist white folks to preserve the illusion of their innocence and their morality in the midst of marginalized people's dehumanization. However, this is the this is the big thing. For them to live in the gospel truth as the Lamanites elected to do, they will have to pay a price and that price will be the divestment from their power and privilege. It will have to be a reconciliation to their brothers and sisters that can only be brought about with an effort to restore to them that which was taken away from them. These verses is one are one of the reasons that I believe in reparations. It seems to be a necessary part of the process of reconciling ourselves to Christ and reconciling ourselves you know, to our siblings in Christ, the fourfold gospel of the the fourfold mission of the church is all about reconciliation. Anyway, it's about mm-hmm. reconciling ourselves to the dead, reconciling ourselves to our to Christ, reconciling ourselves to ourselves by perfecting ourselves, and reconciling ourselves to other people. That is what the gospel is all about, and the work of reconciliation, the work of becoming a follower and a disciple of Christ, it's not going to occur until racist whites have a reckoning with all this mess I just talked about. The theft, the dehumanization, the dispossession, the white supremacy, we have to be able to reckon with it. And I've said it before on the show, I'll say it again. We are not going to become the church that we are meant to become until we can name white supremacy, until we can name police brutality, until we can name the homophobia that exists, and until we can finally reckon with the effects of all of those things, the patriarchy, the misogyny, the whatever else, we have to reckon with all of it. That's what the Lamanites did here as a result of their conversion. That's what we have to do as well as a result of our conversion. If we are truly converted, we are going to fix this stuff. We are going to reconcile ourselves. You know, what I was going to say gets back to something you said like a number of a number of minutes ago around the big uphill battle that's being asked of white folk. 
and that may give us a clue as to what these evidences were. You were asking about these evidences. Yes, sir. And um, what I realized is that people can lie about what they saw and heard. Like, mm-hmm. if someone says, oh, I saw this earthquake or fire or whatever, that people... But what people will really change people's minds is the changed character. Like, when the Interior 300 changed their behavior and said, look, we're not going to do these things anymore... Everyone else is going to be like, wow, some real thing happened to change them. This isn't something that you can fake. That's a great point. And I think once people saw the changed 300, that was the evidences that says there's something real behind this. Mm-hmm. This isn't, you know. And I loved how in a micro um version of this aminadab served that function because he was just one person <laughs> yeah. who said hey wait a minute let's let's look at let's take a second look at this and you see what he did by the way you saw, yeah. you saw that he told people to remember the words of alma and amulek yeah. they're only like 40 years removed from that experience by the way so mm-hmm. aminadab is probably that old head in prison he's probably like 60 70 years yeah. old you know telling these young people y'all got to remember this mess this is what we saw y'all better get yourselves right mm-hmm. that's how i view and he was a Nephite dissenter, so he knew yeah. and then remem- knew those traditions and then remembered them. Mm-hmm. And then because of his his actions, he was a catalyst for the conversion of, of more. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably what these evidences are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a great point. I didn't even consider the fact that you know this changed behavior, these changed demeanors and countenances could probably serve as the evidence that these people uh, saw. And I think this is a pattern we see in the in the New Testament as well, especially the book of Acts, where you have the apostles emboldened, and then people are like, wait a minute, they must know something. Correct. There must be some amazing thing that burst into this world that can only be explained by the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm. And uh, I love how uh, the second half of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation, that was one of his highest priorities is reconciling Jew and Gentile, reconciling us with with God. And I, and I love how you tied that back into the mission, the fourfold mission of the church. Thank you. All right, that's all I got for uh, Helaman 5. Uh, I mean, the one thing I want to also bring out is, we hinted at this, but our friend David Simmons, who's one of our listeners, yes, he has notices that a conversion to Christ leads to a conversion to nonviolence. And I think that needs to be named. And that's probably one of the biggest evidences is people look like, oh, these people are really different now. There's no way of of faking that. Mm. Brilliant insight. Thank you, David Simmons. Yeah. Okay, shall we move to Helaman 6? Yeah, the first thing I have is in verse 13 about the textiles. I'm not. No, I, I know better. Yeah, do you than have the anything? S- of course, I got that. No. Okay. I have questions. Textiles. What are we talking about? Why are we talking about textiles? But I assume you're going to answer that okay, question. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about this. Let's read verse uh, Helaman six, verse thirteen. It says, "Behold, their women did toil and spin, and did make all manner of cloth, of fine twisted linen, and of cloth of every kind to clothe their nakedness." Now let's talk, first of all, notice how it says their women. So the men are central to the story, and then it describes them as their women. Mm -hmm. So we have to name that. 
But here we see, like the tip of an iceberg, an example of traditional wisdom and learning, which may have empowered women. And this might be parallel to the example of fathers passing down wisdom to their sons in the Book of Mormon. We see a lot of that, right? <laughs> but like an iceberg, we only get a hint of what must have been a larger body of information about women in Nephite villages. And we just get a little hint of that. All right. I think that many times we certain we see, and this is true then as today, we see certain tasks as gendered. And then those tasks that are gendered as female get less value. And that's actually a circular problem because then if something gets seen as female, then it's less value. And then if it has less value, then it then, it, then the men don't want to do it. And then it gets left to the women, which makes it more of a women's uh, thing. But we don't have to devalue the production of textiles here. The fact that women are mentioned at all right here means that the impact on the culture and civilization must have been significant. And this ties back into something we said last week, that because the mention of women is so rare in the Book of Mormon, it is significant, and it is so significant that it must have been essential to report that this mm. textile creation it must have been essential to the story. And in human history, our oldest ways of transmitting meaning seem to be pottery and textiles. Even before the invention of writing, you had pottery and you had textiles. Hmm. Uh, another old thing would be cave paintings, but that's even way older. Let's connect this with Proverbs chapter 31. Do you know Proverbs 31? I mean, I've definitely read it because, like, it's one of the few books in the Old Testament that I can, you know, stomach. But, <laughs> okay. you know, remind me, what is in Proverbs 31? Okay, so Proverbs 31 reports the words of a woman. This is King Lemuel's mother and her wisdom. And it's her words about a woman, which is the uh, idealized woman of noble character. This is the who can find a virtuous wife text, depending okay. on how you translate it. Now, we, of course, we don't want to pedestalize women, but we do want to be invited into the world of women in the ancient Near East. And so here we're going to have a little bit of a digression about Proverbs 31. Now, what's interesting is that in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs 31 is immediately followed by the book of Ruth, which contains the story of a noble woman who acts with initiative and wisdom and insight and responsibility. And then this book of Ruth is immediately followed by the Song of Songs, where a woman is the central character. In the Song of Songs, she has the most, most of the speaking lines. She has the first word and the last word. She, throughout the text, names what she finds pleasurable, what she consents to, and what she desires, and what she feels. And I love uh, those texts as well. So everyone go read Ruth and the Song of Songs. But, but let's get back to the words of Proverbs 31. And I'm not going to—I probably shouldn't read all of these, but I'm just going to highlight some of the things in verses 13 to 26. So here's the, uh, the woman. She seeks out wool and flax. Uh, she works with her hands. She uh, brings in food. She provides food for her household. She, she looks at a field, examines it, and buys it, right? And from her own income, she plants a vineyard. 
Um, she strengthened her own arms. She perceives merchandise as being good. She extends her hands to the spool, and she also opens her hand to the poor and extended her hands to the needy. Um, she made clothing out of fine linen, and uh, she made linen garments and sold them. She traded belts. She, her clothing was strong and splendid. And verse 26, she has opened her mouth with wisdom, with loving instruction on her tongue. And we don't get a lot of pictures of women in our scriptural record, but I think this is really beautiful to point out mm. because she engages in industry. She makes an economic decisions. She exemplifies wisdom. She has teaching authority. She engages in social justice, which some people... I'm not naming any names. Some <laughs> people have a little problem with social justice, but mm. it's there in the text. And she has initiative and responsibility and so forth. Now, let's do something a little different. And this is going to be somewhat similar to this spiritual exercise you did earlier. And this is going to okay. be a surprise to James. He doesn't even know what I'm going to do, and he might delete it afterward. <laughs> <laughs> but let's try this Ignatian exercise. So Ignatius invites us to sit with a character in the narrative to see the story through that character's eyes, imagine, imagining everything in vivid detail as if you were there. And this is a way of encountering God and being spiritually transformed through that encounter. And with practice, this exercise can even prompt an awareness of God's presence in every aspect of your life. So here it is. Imagine that you are a Nephite woman. And I'd like men to imagine this too, because many of us men are not socialized to think we should learn anything from women in scripture and we and we should so here's what i want you to do close your eyes focus your heart and mind god is present as you listen now imagine that you are a nephite woman your daughter is right beside you watching your fingers deftly work the loom imagine how the dirt feels under your feet Imagine the feeling of linen thread in your hands. Imagine the fresh smell of the linen. Imagine the bright colors coming together as you show your daughter the pattern that your grandmother taught you. Imagine explaining to your daughter that your Nephite textile patterns can reveal which clan or tribe or family produced them, and even what generation produced them. Imagine the sun on your face through the open window as it illumines your loom. Imagine that you can hear your husband teach your son various things outside. And you know that you are handing down in these fabrics skills and knowledge and identity that are just as valid as those passed down on metal plates from father to son. So now you can come back, and uh, last week we had a more academic exercise. This week it was more intuitional and imaginative, and I just wanted people to maybe I did maybe I did everything wrong, but I, at least I, I I I put some focus on the women in the text and say there's larger things that we're missing. Can we imagine what? what the role of textiles and, and and take it seriously a lot of people say well why is Derek talking about textiles but I think we can take it seriously you know the word text in English actually comes from the same Latin root as textile it's something woven together a text is a 
something woven together. So I think there is great meaning in textiles, and we shouldn't just automatically assume, like I said earlier, that women's work is somehow lesser, and we should devalue it just because. Awesome. Anything else in Chapter 6? So I just had two brief comments about we've got this long thing in verses 20 through 24 that I'm not going to read. It's about the Gadianton robbers and how they conspire. We didn't talk about them at all. That is incredible. <laughs> and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read these, but what you notice is they, they they engage in this secret covenant and and secret combination to protect each other and and this reminds me a lot about about how patriarchy functions, that people in power cover for each other. We've got police and prosecutors exonerating each other, and we've got a big mess here. And you can see how this is named in the Book of Mormon as something really that that really erodes the foundations of society. And the the other thing I wanted to say is uh, something you've already mentioned in verses thirty four and thirty through thirty six. You've got the text transgressing our expectations and our understanding of categories and classifications are stereotypes, basically. So the Lamanites are righteous, and the Nephites are wicked. So what do you think about those two things, both the um, covering for one another as, a, as a, an analogy to the Gadiant and robbers, and then how the Nephite narrative here actually subverts our stereotypes about Nephites and Lamanites? Um, as far as the first point goes... I'm glad it's been named and connected that oppressive institutions have this commonality among each other and with uh, the Gadianton robbers. That being, they cover for each other and they make excuses for each other. And in fact, that's exactly how patriarchy is supposed to function. Mm -hmm, that is mm -hmm, how white mm -hmm. supremacy is supposed to function. These oppressive institutions, these different kinds of uh, privileged identities, they are not broken. They are functioning just how they're supposed to do. These disparities uh, between black people and white people in every American institution, that is how America was built. That is how, it is con that is how it's supposed to function. Everybody in power covers for each other. Everybody justifies everybody else's mm -hmm. sins. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all I have for, for, the, for the lesson. Cool. That's all I got as well. So let's go ahead and move into these housekeeping items real quick before we do want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're also at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And in case we have any relatively new listeners, I don't think we've asked this in a while, but go ahead and leave us a great review on wherever you listen to your to podcasts. Do it on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, though. Apple Podcasts. <laughs> well, leave a review both places or something, and, if, and hopefully you think we've earned a five-star review. So mm -hmm. thanks. Yes. And what are those handles, Derek? 
That's BTB LDS on uh, Twitter and Instagram and just Beyond the Block on Facebook. Yes. And uh, events coming up, Derek. Yeah, we have this Affirmation Conference. And Affirmation is a group for LGBTQ Mormons and family and friends and allies and also people who have left the church still. This is a really all-inclusive group. And so Affirmation every year has a conference, and I was one of the plenary speakers a few years ago at this conference. But this year it's online, and a lot of people won't want to pay the airfare and the hotel and everything. But here you can get a great deal of being able to go to this conference for only $39, and it's actually free for local church leaders. There's a special track for local church leaders if you want to get more informed about the LGBTQ experience and how to better serve the population in your ward or stake, definitely check that out. And you should go to conference.affirmation.org and register. And you can also um, check out the schedule. It's going to be held gradually over several weekends beginning on the 12th of September. So it should be very easy to fit in your schedule. There's going to be some great keynote speakers, including... Um, Carol Lynn Pearson, who's who's a great poet, and everyone should know who she is. And then also Matthew Gong, who is the amazing gay son of Elder Gong. And he came out, was it last year, I think? He came out last year. And so he's got a very interesting story, and I, I'm very curious what he's going to say. Also... We really appreciate you guys who have been, uh, you know, hopping on our Glow page for the last little while. For those of you who don't know about our Glow page, in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone, we launched this Glow page uh, where if you're willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. And uh, those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group, where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback, ideas for the show, access our notes, and a lot more. If you have not coins to throw at us, you can just share our Glow page on your socials, and uh, you can still join our collaborator family. Uh, So yeah, just want to let you guys know about that. Oh, we got some new collaborators, and I finally got some names to put with these, though I don't know how to pronounce all of them. So if I butcher your name, please forgive me. So most recent ones, we got uh, Shauna Falk. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Melissa DiPietro. Mark Coles Ritchie. Thank you. Janiel Foster. Or sorry, Janae L. Foster. Heidi Sabalos. Sabayos. I am so sorry if I'm butchering this. I really should have asked y'all how to pronounce these before I got on this mic. Uh, Deborah White, thank you. Ernalt Niflheim, thank you. Jonathan Barton, Landon Holiday Carter, uh, Rissa, Rissa Gunderson, Gail Harmon Berkey, Carolyn McCullough, thank you for joining us as well. And I think that covers everybody. That uh, link, by the way, if you want to throw some coins at us, is glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. 
Is there anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, finally, some final thank yous to our friends Tamara Kemsley for editing the show. She's getting married this weekend, by the way. Congratulations, Tamara. And uh, also David Doyle for editing our transcripts and uh, also Eden Wen for handling our social media. All of you guys are rock stars. Thank you so much. Uh, Is there anything else we should put out there, Derek? Nope, that's it. All right, awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening till we meet again next week. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you again next week.